0: Hello, and welcome to the Bar of Ireland's Justice Week podcast series. This year, Justice Week Ireland is focusing on law and technology. And in this episode, Darren Lehan, Senior Counsel, speaks with fellow barristers Edmund Sweetman and Zeldine Neve O'Brien on the topics of maritime law, outer space law, and technology. Welcome to the Bar of Ireland Justice Week podcast. My name is Darren Lehan, Senior Counsel, and I'm Joined today by Edmund Sweetman, uh, barrister at law, and Zeldine O'Brien, uh, barrister of law. Hello, uh, Edmund and Zeldine. Hello, Good Darren. Afternoon. Our Justice Week podcast is on a really, really topical subject, namely how we govern or interact with areas either outside or above Ireland, namely the governance of outer space and related issues, and our seas. This is really topical because if we think of newspaper and television reports uh, in recent times, we've discovered that Ireland has one of the largest territorial areas in Europe. If we include uh, the sea and uh, if we see the uh, commercial involvement in space in recent times and the amount of satellites that private entities are being sent up, um, as well as the space race between some of our richest uh, inhabitants on this planet, it seems really timely to be talking about how we regulate these new frontiers in sea and space. And I'm very grateful to the Bar Council for asking me to participate in in, in this podcast. Uh, I suppose I should just explain a little bit about who I am first. Um, I'm a barrister, a senior counsel who specializes in commercial law with a particular emphasis on maritime and admiralty law. So that's my interest in uh, one of the topics under discussion. Obviously, I watch the television and that's... Uh, something that requires access to satellite technology as well. So I think that's the two bases covered uh, here today. In terms of our guests, Edmund and Zeldine, who've introduced themselves, we're very fortunate to be joined by two speakers of such a high calibre. Edmund, if I can start with you first. Edmund is the president of the Irish Maritime Law Association. That is the national law organization in Ireland that deals with maritime law matters. It is a uh, member of the Committee Maritime International, which I think, Edmund, is the oldest uh, private law organization in the world dealing with maritime uh, legal issues.
1: That's correct, yes.
0: And the Committee Maritime International has a, a number of very important working groups and committees, and Edmund, uh, I know from reading the website, has been involved in a number of those uh, working groups and subcommittees over the years. In terms of his practice at the bar, he is one of Ireland's leading specialists in maritime and admiralty law, both in terms of grand topics relating to fisheries law, but also in relation to more mundane matters, such as collisions and carriage uh, disputes as well. Uh, Zeldin, who also joins us, is uh, one of the bar's foremost experts in uh, the law relating to outer space. She is a published author in this area, contributing a chapter to uh, the text Commercial Space Exploration, Ethics, Policy and Governance. So we're very fortunate to be joined by a speaker uh, of Zeldin's uh, calibre. In terms of her day-to-day, she is a leading practitioner in the area of public law and in commercial and civil law as well. So um, just having given that very embarrassing introduction to both of our experts this afternoon, I, I, I might just kick off in terms of trying to understand some of the topics in this area. I suppose, Zeldin, the the thing that always jumps out about me when we talk about outer space is the old idea that somebody who owns land owns everything under and over the land. Well, in terms of what's over the land, it will keep going on and on and on into space. So could you just tell me a bit about how is outer space governed? What are the treaties, what are the laws governing uh, outer space and the exploitation thereof?
2: Well, there is a committee on the peaceful uses of outer space, which operates within the United Nations, and there are five main treaties, all of which were concluded by this committee, which is abbreviated as COPUOS or UN COPUOS. There are also five sets of principles on space activities that also come from COPUOS. So, on those main international treaties, you start off with the Outer Space Treaty, that the long-winded title is the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and of the celestial bodies and that was adopted by the, the General Assembly and opened for a signature on the 27th of January 1967 and it entered into force on the same year on the 10th of October.
0: So before men, before the first man went on the moon we were looking at regulating it, yeah.
2: Yes and the, the principles in that treaty were in fact based on an earlier uh, declaration of legal principles which was promulgated in 1963 on the 13th of December 1963 and the real trigger there was, uh, was the launch of Sputnik rather than uh, man being on uh, or attempting to go to the moon. And this was followed up by the rescue agreement or the rescue and return agreement. And that was from 1968. And that addresses the rescue of astronauts, the return if they're in distress or they've had an emergency, and the return of objects launched into outer space. And then liability is dealt with both in the Outer Space Treaty, but it's further developed by the Liability Convention, or, which was open for signature in 1972. And, and if I she- can
0: stop you there, Zeldin, when we talk about liability, you know, to lawyers, liability means different things. But just for listeners of our podcast, what do you mean by liability in this context?
2: So when is a state liable for damage done by a space object that it has launched, whether it has damaged another space object in outer space uh, in airspace or traversing through airspace in the context of launching or a failure to launch or on the way back down to Earth at the end of its life, or to damage on the surface of, of the Earth itself? So that convention deals with liability of states to other states and also for the violation of territorial sovereignty that a uh, space object entering another state's territory may may cause
0: so that's if i in kazakhstan send up a satellite into space but it lands in say french territorial waters what's the interaction between the kazakhstani object and the french government in terms of the landing of that satellite into the waters in terms that... of
2: liability yes it will address that
0: so if it crashes into a fishing boat or something
2: yes if that fishing boat happens to be within the territorial waters the liability convention will cover that uh but it it, it, would, it also predicates liability on being a launching state. So if it was the case that another state launched from Kazakhstan, bear in mind that Russia often launches from Kazakhstan, both Russia and Kazakhstan in that example would be a launching states so or would meet the definition of a launching state in, in international law.
0: So, so that's really interesting because I mean, one of the things that occurred to me when I was trying to wrap my head around some of these contexts concepts was like the basic one of like, why do we need laws in in, in outer space? And I suppose what you're saying is we need laws in outer space to to delimit or set out what are different either state actors or individual actors' rights and responsibilities in relation to what happens out there. So I suppose if we take that as a, a starting point, could you just outline to our listeners what some of the basic principles of international space law are?
2: Well, firstly, it's that the, the the basic tenets are set out in the Outer Space Treaty, and these have been expanded in various other treaties and agreements, including the Registration Convention. But at the core of it, exploration and use of outer space is carried out for the benefit and the interests of all countries, and is in the province of all mankind. And that's set out in Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty. Also that this freedom of scientific investigation, and key to that is the principle that outer space is not subject to national appropriation, whether that's by claim of sovereignty or by means of use or occupation or indeed by any other means.
0: Yeah, if I can stop there for a second, because this is really interesting, because we often hear of, in the olden times, people setting off on voyages and putting their flags down on countries like Australia and saying, this is terra nullius, There's, there's nobody else here, and we claim this in the name of the King of England or the King of Denmark or the King of Sweden, and we see those maps of, say, the Antarctica on the atlases, where we see that certain portions of Europe belong to Norway, etc. Like, are there any claims by countries to territories in space, or on the moon, or other celestial bodies?
2: No, the regime in outer space law precludes such claims, and that that drives marks to the Outer Space Treaty. So, unlike. The example you give of the new land that you discover—that's res nullus. In outer space, for the, the moon, outer space, the moon, and other celestial bodies, you're speaking of the province of all mankind, and that means it's res communis rather than res nullus. And the regime itself specifically precludes claims of sovereignty. However, there have been private entities, corporate entities, uh, and and various individuals that have sought to claim uh, territory uh, and and real property rights. And there are two cases on the point where the matter has been considered by courts, uh, in both cases, American courts. Uh, the first one was uh, Nimitz and the United States. That's a case from the District Court of Nevada uh, that came to the court on the 26th of April, 2004. And in that case, the applicant claimed to actually own asteroid 4333 Eros, and for those who are really interested in space activities, they recognize the name of that asteroid as the one upon which NASA landed the near Shoemaker spacecraft. And the applicant's claim was for a liquidated sum, being the debt he said accrued for parking fees against NASA. And the applicant basically relied upon a class D designation from the Archimedes Institute, his natural property rights, and uh, his Californian commercial code filing. In fact, he represented himself. He didn't have the actual documents in order that proved the claim, but his claim was dismissed as was no valid legal basis for asserting ownership. And it was held that neither the 10th nor the 11th Amendments of the US Constitution provided him with a cognizable cause of action for the denial of property rights in space. And he appealed and the appellate court affirmed and upheld the district court orders. And a separate case then is U.S. and one lucite bowl containing lunar material, one moon rock and one 10-inch by 14-inch wooden plaque, uh, which was uh, a case concerning a purchase by a U.S. national of a 1.1-gram piece of lunar rock that had been part of a larger sample named the Goodwill Rock. And that had been broken into uh, several hundred pieces, uh, almost several hundred pieces, and distributed to 135 nations. And the rock in question in the case had been one presented uh, in Lucite uh, and mounted on a plaque to the president of Honduras, uh, for the people of Honduras, by the United States. And it had been stolen by Colonel Ugarte in the 1960s and during a coup. And the US National in questioner, Mr. Rosen, he had acquired this plaque and he was seeking to sell the plaque, and it was subsequently confiscated by custom servants a- agents on the grounds that he had not paid the appropriate custom duties on import. And he argued that the rock had been the property of the Honduran government and so was outside the scope of the government regulations, and the court itself found that the property or the rock was the property of the Honduran government and Mr. Rosen did not have good title and Mr. Justice Jordan ordered the return of the rocks. So while it is the case that there's no claim to territories in space, the moon or the celestial bodies, it is possible for title to pass to resources once ex situ or at least there is case law recognizing it. There are also two further instances of legislation uh, in the US and in, from the European side uh, Luxembourg that have recognised uh, space resources are susceptible to appropriation. Yeah, and
0: if we pause there because, I mean, those two cases you talk about are really interesting because I mean, they show on, on, on one level uh an individual trying to assert a claim of ownership to something that's that's in space. And secondly, to somebody trying to assert ownership to something that has come from space onto Earth. But I think what a lot of our listeners might be interested in is, say that on the moon or on an asteroid, we discovered a, a mineral that might be very rare on Earth, but is found in very large quantities on that extraterrestrial entity. People might want to exploit it and I always I always think in terms of if we look back through our history we see that technological development has always advanced in 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 time of war extreme competition and extreme competition being uh, one example being the um competition to try and secure access to minerals so what would happen uh in terms of claims to uh ownership of particular resources on say uh, uh, on the moon if it was discovered that there was a big chunk of diamond for example on the moon and the Irish government wanted to send up um, spaceships to try and exploit some of this resource how would how would that work would that be allowed what would it be governed by would it be governed by the treaties that you've referred to there Uh, And how would disputes be resolved in relation to that if we wanted to send up the Irish moon base to exploit that diamond resource?
2: Well, in terms of access, Ireland, like any other uh, state party to the Outer Space Treaty, would be free to access space and the moon and other celestial bodies. Um, If they established an installation on the moon, well, ownership of that installation or any of its component parts would be unaffected by being present in space. And that arises by under Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty, There are obligations on states to supervise uh, their activities of their nationals. So if it wasn't the state, but a corporate vehicle registered under the laws of Ireland, Ireland, like every other state party, has an obligation to supervise uh, the activities of their nationals in space. So what you see in most regimes that have uh, space industries, you have the state, issuing licenses. Uh, so an application is made and they will issue a license and then they supervise compliance with that license. But
0: say if the Irish state, say if the, an entity applied for a license to, ex, to mine for those diamonds on the moon and they apply for the Irish state for a license to mine those diamonds, does that mean that that private entity, even though it's subject to the Governs the Irish state can just, if it gets the license, mine away to its heart's content? I I presume not.
2: The difficulty comes with the interaction between sovereignty and. And private property rights. So whether you're holding with the feudal system that linked sovereignty and property rights together or you're deriving from a system where the two are separate. So an ex situ resource that has been reduced into possession is one that can be brought within the jurisdiction of, the, of, of a court. However, from an international law point of view, this is a vexed question and there are debates even amongst the academics as what the import of Article 2 in terms of precluding claims by sovereignty by any other means if you're going to allow private resource exploitation. Certainly the US by its private law uh, allows for uh, those entities that are engaged in commercial space mining to claim asteroid resources or space resources and at the same time disclaims sovereignty claims. Luxembourg itself has also recognized space resources. Ireland has not. And this is a point where there's a difference between the law in, in, uh, of, of maritime law and uh, certainly space law in how it has chosen to approach this. So at the moment, we just have that provision on... Uh, on no claims for national appropriation. We also have the continuing uh, supervision, and states have to conduct their activities in outer space with due regard to the rights uh, and of access by other states. So, but- so I, th-
0: so I think if I'm summarising what you're saying is that this is a very complex area that is underdeveloped in some respects. And as time goes by and practical problems present themselves, it will force people to build on those existing legal commitments to apply. Them to their particular circumstances, and if I can look at that for a second, because we've seen the development of the commercial space tourism industry over the years, and we've seen Elon Musk launching satellites into orbit and talking about having private missions to Mars. Is that allowed under these current system of international law? I mean, is an entity like I think is Elon Musk's entity, is called SpaceX? Is that allowed, a private entity, which wouldn't be bound by the Outer Space Treaty? Or are they bound by virtue of wherever they're registered as a commercial entity?
2: To my knowledge, the the SpaceX company, I think that is registered in the US. So the US has a supervisory jurisdiction under international law. So any attempt to launch a mission will be regulated by US law. So an application would have to be made to the FAA for a license. And, and what's the FAA? Uh, the Federal Aviation Administration. So even though the name suggests it's aviation, they they also um, provide the licensing regime and administer that for private commercial entities. In terms of going to uh, Mars, can you go to Mars? Uh, techno- technological questions aside, uh, yeah, there is right of access um, guaranteed by states uh, under the Outer Space Treaty to all states. That That is one of the principles, um, and that the, one of the issues freedom of scientific investigation, but it doesn't, and, and peaceful use Uh, and peaceful use of art, So commercial exploitation doesn't offend the peaceful use principle. That's really interesting.
0: And and thank you, Zeldin, for that really fascinating um, account or summary of how outer space is governed, because I think a lot of our listeners, I know I, for one, wouldn't have been as familiar with that topic as uh, we might be with um, the governance, for example, of our maritime spaces. And I I think, Edmund, I'd, I'd like to move to you and maybe talk about how, Our maritime spaces are governed. Can you just explain to our listeners the governance of our seas and our EEZ? It's received a lot of uh, publicity in recent times with the Russian Navy's Uh, military exercises being conducted in international waters or within our EEZ. I think uh, people would have heard those terms, but they mightn't really have understood why uh, a load of ships doing something that far away from the island of Ireland would be of concern to them. So maybe you might outline briefly how all of that works.
1: Um, Certainly, yeah. Um, As regards the, the, uh, the, the exercise of jurisdiction, I suppose, over an area of sea, um, this has become increasingly more regulated and, and clearer, particularly over the, 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 the 20th century. Whilst uh, traditionally, historically, there has always been uh, jurisdiction uh, exercised by states over the, their adjoining seas. Uh, up until relatively recently, the jurisdiction that a state would exercise over its territorial sea, the sea immediately adjoining its, uh, its coast, was effectively measured as 3 miles which was considered at, at one stage in military technology to be the outer limit Yeah I was of, going of to say it, shot.
0: is it true that that was somebody shooting how far a cannon would go that that's how they calculated
1: that Exactly it was considered that if you could hit a ship from the land that 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 was the, the effectively the useful extent of your jurisdiction and for that reason right up into the mid 20th century the uh, territorial sea uh, in many parts places around the world uh, including Ireland w- was 3 miles and then it is subsequently been expanded right out to the, the current limit of, of 12 miles. Uh, as I said, the, the whole area has become uh, considerably more uh, regulated and, and there's much greater international uh, consensus on what the, the, the rules are, because obviously uh, it's no point in one country making it up as it goes along. What's most useful as regards the peaceful exploitation and use of the, the seas is that is that all of the um, the the, uh, the states agree on a way of doing it, and that's represented uh, nowadays by uh, what's known as UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, in its third iteration. It's UNCLOS three. Uh, so that's
0: uh, an international treaty yes. governing how states interact with the seas and is that where the EEZ comes from
1: that because? is where the current uh, the currently um, internationally accepted uh, definition of the EEZ comes from so the EEZ stands for exclusive economic zone um very briefly one could, uh, could one could look at uh, effectively Four areas of water which are described by UNCLOS 3 and indeed in former iterations as well uh, the first being internal waters then you have the territorial sea then you have the exclusive economic zone the EEZ and outside that you can have the the uh, the, the continental shelf so when you you in referred to in, in uh, earlier to the, the large ex- Uh, territory which Ireland exercises jurisdiction over not only land but in particularly sea and and as that very interesting uh, image that anyone who's interested can find on the internet the Irish Maritime Atlas uh, which circumscribes a huge uh, area of sea stretching way out into the Atlantic. That is the actual the continental shelf, uh, and different rights may be uh, exerted over different uh, maritime areas. The uh, closest rights that can be exercised by a state would be over the internal waters. Then the territorial sea uh, would be considered effectively part of the national, national territory, and, and that's important for the exercise of coastal state jurisdiction. And lesser rights uh, in respect of the exclusive economic zone, particularly in respect of matters relating to the environment, and protection of the and the environment hence hence uh, fishing and then mining rights and other matters would uh, extend out to the continental shelf
0: and and that's really interesting that you started off the discussion by explaining that um, it was, in a sense, military technology, which determined the extent of a state's um, territorial season, namely by how far a cannon would, would go. Because now, of course, military technology is such that ships can shoot at each other without actually being able to see each other. I, I suppose the question that I had moving slightly off topic, um or onto a different topic is in relation to weaponized military systems, because they there are legal challenges, surely that are posed by these advances in military technology. Could you explain maybe some of the legal challenges that are being faced as a result of advancing military technology, maybe by reference to the types of systems that are available and the impacts that international law, be it humanitarian law, could govern the operation of those systems?
1: Yes, well, in respect of military technology, because certainly the, the, it's a very interesting uh, time uh, as regards the, the use of unmanned vessels or autonomous vessels this is a very dy- dynamic area at the time, uh, at the moment, and huge amounts of energy and, and money is being invested by um, by both state actors and, and private business in respect of these areas. But as regards the use of autonomous vehicles for military purposes, it's certainly known that that uh, seagoing vessels are used, but they would all be of a relatively small size perhaps 10 to 15 meters uh, much more common would be uh, the drone uh, and the aircraft the autonomous aircraft which are used to, to launch missile attacks. this
0: is like where somebody is sitting in a hut or a pod in in nevada and they're operating a a plane a small dr- unmanned plane that's flying over the south atlantic
1: exactly Exactly. Um, and that's that seems to be, unfortunately, uh, rather common now, uh, particularly for special operations, whether it's for surveillance purposes or, or indeed launching weapons. Uh, the recorded instances of this happening with uh, seagoing vessels is less common, but it's certainly the case uh, for surveillance that um, that unmanned vessels are being used. But I think the real challenges in respect, on the real the real interest uh, interesting area in respect of autonomous uh, or unmanned vessels is on the commercial side and, and the opportunities it offers there as regards the use of autonomous uh vessels in respect to, uh, for military purposes that is probably more of a, a humanitarian as you suggested a, a humanitarian issue or a, a military law uh issue at an international level but given, what can but be
0: given that not. you've said that the primary focus of unmanned vessels is in the commercial sphere then maybe let's look at that and mm-hmm. could you explain to me is it oil tankers are going to be run autonomously i.e unmanned or you know, maybe give us a flavor to some of these unmanned vessels and the regime governing
1: them? Well, um, you could look at uh, or categorize uh, unmanned vessels into two different categories. There would be vessels which are controlled remotely, so from pods or, or hubs uh, located anywhere around the world with professional mariners and people trained in IT who might be a, a controlling a, a vessel, piloting the vessel instead of being on a bridge perhaps uh, 40 meters up uh, on a huge steel structure, uh, living on that maybe for months uh, on end without ever disembarking. Instead, the vessel would be controlled from uh, through information technology would be controlled from the comfort of a warm room with people able to go home at night and being substituted by a different officer perhaps a a crew a a navigation crew a deck what would be the deck officers uh, normally might be controlling six or seven vessels
2: but even as
0: even as you're saying that to me Edmund it strikes me that at a time when we're all worried that our mobile phones could be taken over by hackers um could hackers Take over an entire ship then by by infiltrating its security systems. Like, does the unmanned vessel not create a huge problem for cybersecurity? A hacker hacking into the system, taking over the ship, and then sending a message to the owner of the ship: "If you don't pay me ten million dollars, I'm going to crash your ship or into an island or something." I mean, is this a problem or is it just my paranoia?
1: I, I would agree. Uh, maybe I'm paranoid too, but I think that that is one of the greatest challenges. In fact, to autonomous vessels is uh, is security, is cybersecurity, and until one can make these systems relatively impregnable, if such a thing exists, uh, then it's it's difficult to see how far uh, autonomous shipping can be brought. Yeah,
0: because surely it's a huge problem for insurance. I mean, who's going to insure you if there's nobody there? You're susceptible to that type of of an attack. But, but, well, uh, it will
1: be a problem until the risk can be quantified, because ultimately that's what the, the, the mark of the insurance. And, and,
0: and is there any indication, I suppose, just before I go back to Zeldine, what's happening at EU policymaking in relation to um, unmanned ships or drones, etc.?
1: Well, Europe, the European Commission has been coordinating a number of projects and effectively has developed a suite of guidelines. Um, I suppose one could describe in in, a, in a rather coarse terms, the, the role of the Commission has been herding cats in that uh, it has to achieve a, a particular critical mass between states because ultimately what is lacking in respect of autonomous vessels is uh, is a degree of coherent approach by the international community. The state actors have to effectively agree what uh, that, that an unmanned vessel may be properly defined as a ship, that an unmanned vessel which has been con- controlled remotely are by information technology an autonomous vessel, that that qualifies as a properly manned uh, vessel. So for instance, Article four four b of the, the UNCLOS requires uh, uh, seagoing vessels or ocean-going vessels to, to be crewed by a properly qualified master. And that particular definition is one that is seen as being problematic as regards uh, an autonomous vessel or even a vessel that is being commanded by a master but remotely from uh, from so, somewhere around the
0: world. So get, yet again another example of uh, lawmaking have to, having to race to catch up with developments in the commercial sphere. If I can go back to you now Zeljine. I mean one thing that strikes me about um, the issues uh, surrounding the governance of outer space is the application of international humanitarian law to war in space because our listeners will be familiar of the concept of the geneva convention and the idea that you can't shoot prisoners for example in 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 a time of armed conflict and those rules are ancient going back to the 17th century indeed to um before the common era but um in terms of this new area of space and the exploitation of space, and all of the satellites are out there, and also the possibility of armed conflict in outer space due to rising geopolitical tension between the, I suppose we could call them the space powers. Can you just outline to me maybe a bit of uh, how all of this will work? How will international humanitarian norms or law apply to war in space if if it ever happened, which hopefully it won't?
2: When you we're answering the question, why do we need laws in outer space? I think one of the aspects that was recognized by the Outer Space Treaty um, in the the resolution adopting the Outer Space Treaty was the importance of developing the rule of law in, in that area. And that becomes very critical when you're dealing with international humanitarian law. The Outer Space Treaty itself says that your your use and exploration uh, of outer space, the moon, and other celestial bodies is in accordance with international law. And that's Article uh, 1.1. And it then re-emphasizes this in Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty, that activities are to be carried out in accordance with international law and specifically states this includes the Charter of the United Nations in the interest of maintaining international peace and security. So the concern about, I suppose, space wars and um, that's a long-standing one that dates back really to the development of of space law which was developed uh, chiefly parts of it during the cold war the Outer Space Treaty has provided that space is for peaceful uses and for peaceful purposes, and it prohibits the placement of nuclear weapons and or weapons of mass destruction or and installing them on the moon or the celestial bodies. But again, the general principles of international law, including humanitarian law, are recognized as applying to outer space, and that includes the charter, and the charter itself allows for self-defense. However, the treaty has been very successful if its purpose was to keep uh, space wars at bay, um, and that is coupled with state practice to date in terms of conforming to the treaty. So that supports the sufficiency of the current legal framework. Um, certainly, I think uh, an extensive space debris fields that might have been that might be caused by the use of weaponry in space may well render space simply financially unusable. Uh, in in any in the way that we're using now, in terms of well, all of its access for remote sensing, for instance, disaster management, telecommunications, telemedicine, GPS, some of the aspects that we use very heavily today. So I think on the whole, there's more to hope than to fear. Good.
0: So that's that's really interesting. So I, I suppose it seems to be the case, if I can summarize, that we apply existing norms developed over the centuries to our conflicts in the space environment which means there is a sophisticated structure there in terms of governing more in space if only because it's war just happens to be happening in a different in a different place which is really really interesting and somewhat reassuring I suppose Edmund if I can go back to you to just one final topic I mean namely um how planning works because um, many of our listeners will be familiar the, from newspaper and, and, and me- other media reports that the Maritime Area Planning Act uh, passed through all stages I- in the Oireachtas, uh last year. And, and some are saying that this is a huge development in this area. Um, can you just outline perhaps the main features of that legislation and why it's going to have a, a major impact I- in commercial terms uh, I- in this state?
1: Um, well, yes, uh, the the Maritime Area Planning Act two thousand two thousand and twenty one is, uh, I, I think, a game changer in respect of the use of the uh, of the maritime spaces around the uh, around the island. I think many of the listeners would be familiar with the term a foreshore license uh which dates back to the, the the first part of the 20th century the idea of the foreshore license the, the concept itself of the of the foreshore is much older uh, somewhat anomalous when one looks at what many people would understand or traditionally might understand by the foreshore which was effectively that space of land between um low water and high water uh whereas the foreshore licenses under the uh, under the the 1936 act in fact related to something which goes right out to the continental shelf and that's what regulated effectively the exploitation and use of the waters around Ireland so this
0: was all really old law and of course and the maritime area planning act is giving us a a streamlined modern version of how all of this is going to work
1: well that, that's certainly the intent and uh, it's a, it's a very sophisticated piece of legislation that's a complex piece of legislation providing for a number of new statutory bodies and um, but it effectively brings all of the sophistication of the planning and development act uh to bear on the, the maritime sphere and pr- promoted uh and inspired perhaps by the um the maritime spatial planning directive which um Ireland has been some years uh, waiting to to implement through its legislation and that has now been done. But it effectively provides for development plans, but in respect of the, the maritime space and then uh, a particular body which will be we'll called Mara, well initially to be the minister and then a body called Mara, which is uh, aptly named, given um, although that's the English acronym rather than the Irish one.
0: Oh, we'll take it, we'll pretend <laughs> that it's, it's the Irish term.
1: <laughs> Uh, And it is effectively authority, which ultimately will deal with what are called MACs, which are uh, maritime area consents, which would be necessary in order for any development permission to be achieved, um, you would first need a MAC. Uh, So the the piece of legislation itself will also provide for appropriate assessment, uh, proper treatment of the the state's obligations under European law and national law as regards uh, uh, assessing the potential uh you know, interference with with uh, environmental area but it's it's really so important at the moment when one considers the needs ireland's energy needs and well, i was just
0: thinking that i mean if you think of in terms of i mean because we're an island nation all of our power comes in on uh submarine cables whether they be gas or uh, electricity cables and obviously they're laid against uh, on the bottom of the ocean floor um and there have to be rules about how the you know, they operate. Similarly, if you think of all our data centers um, and the sub fiber or the fiber optic cables, which are coming in as well, I mean, these all to get here have to be built um, and they have to be governed by a robust piece of modern legislation, which protects all types of interests, the rights of those people to have things done quickly, the rights of business to be able to access this power or uh, internet capabilities, but also those who want to ensure that our uh, environment doesn't suffer. I mean, these are all the kind of issues that Zeldine was talking about in outer space as well and the regulation of it that 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 go there. But I suppose um, that brings us neatly to an end to our discussion. Um, let me just thank our two speakers, Edmund and Zeldine. I think we've gotten some really good insights from two of the leading experts in Ireland on these topics, Zeldin, the leading expert, one of the leading experts in relation to space law and Edmund, one of the leading experts in relation to maritime law. And it's, it's a great feature of the Bar of Ireland that we have amongst our membership, some of the leading experts in many of these areas, and we can bring them into these podcasts. So I, I suppose just on that note, I'd like to thank both Edmund and Zeldin on my behalf and on your behalf as well for participating in our podcast today. This podcast was produced by the Bar of Ireland for Justice Week 2022. For more information on Justice Week, follow us on Twitter at the Bar of Ireland. Thank you for listening.